A violent scene erupted Sunday between a group of monks gathered at what millions consider one of the holiest places on earth. This was the scene at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as Armenian and Greek Orthodox monks began to shove and push one another. The incident flared up as the Armenian monks began a procession commemorating the 4th century discovery of the cross believed to have been used to crucify Jesus. The Greeks objected, saying the march should not begin without one of their monks present. That's when this scene broke out. The church, located in Jerusalem's old city, marks the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Two clergymen were arrested and questioned following the incident. For MSNBC.com, I'm Dara Brown. Well, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located in Jerusalem over the site where many believe Jesus was crucified as well as over the area where they believe he was buried, hence the name the Holy Sepulchre. If there was any place on earth that you would think there would be peace, wouldn't you imagine it would be there in that church? And yet for centuries there have been six different groups who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ who have occupied the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And as you can see from that video, they do not get along very well. In fact, there are a number of instances that have happened there, not just that one. If you go to Jerusalem and you visit the church, this is the main entrance going in. And you see that red arrow pointing to a wooden ladder that's up on the front of the, the church. Now that ladder, or actually not that one, it's rotted over the years uh, many times. It, it's been there since the 1850s when a workman accidentally left the ladder outside of the church, and because different groups have been given control of different areas of the church by decree, one has control of the ledge, another the wall, another one the window, and they can't agree on removing the ladder because it would mean that one group had authority over another. And so when this ladder rots, it has to be replaced by decree, and everybody who walks by the church sees this example of believers who can't get along with each other. Another sad example is that the keys that opened the church have been carried by, again, by decree by two Muslim families for over a thousand years because the Christians there would rather that a non-believer has the keys to open and close the church than to allow one of the groups of Christians to be seen as having more authority than another. Now, if you lived in Jerusalem and you were looking for the answer to how to have peace or reconciliation in your life, do you think you go to that church to find the answer? Now, thankfully, as we've seen as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, God has given us the answer on how to have peace and reconciliation in our life, first and foremost with God, and then with one another through what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death that separated us from God. He paid our penalty, and he's reconciled us, as we saw earlier in Ephesians, with God and with one another. And as we turn in our Bible today to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is going to continue talking about our reconciliation uh, with one another and how we're to live as believers. And what we're going to see as he begins chapter 4 is that he connects it with the previous chapters because there's going to be the word therefore there in Ephesians 4.1. And whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, why is it therefore? And so Paul is telling us that what he is about to say is tied to what he has said. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 tells us, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, as chapter 4 begins, what he's doing is he's taking us from what he said about our position in Christ to what our practice should be. When he tells us we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, the Greek word for worthy there literally means to be of equal weight, to be of equal weight. And it was used to describe the old balance scales. Uh, you'll, you've seen the blind lady of justice holding these, and the old beam scales were designed so that when you put something on one side, you would add weight to the other side so that you would balance it out. And this is what it means when it says we are to be worthy or of equal weight. 
You recall that for three chapters, Paul has been loading down the position side of the scale, telling us that we're saved by grace through faith, that we've been given riches in heaven and on earth, that he's indwelt us with the power of the Spirit. He's been loading down the position side. And now what he's going to do in the next three chapters is begin to load down the practice side, telling us that our our walk is to be worthy, our conduct is to match our calling. Now, as he does this, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that what the Bible is telling us is that we have to live in a way where we're good enough to get to God. Remember that Paul has already firmly established that we are saved by faith. We read in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. So what Paul is doing here is not calling on us to work our way to God. What he's saying is we already have that gift of eternal life if we've placed our faith in Jesus. What he's saying now is he wants our life to reflect that. He wants the gospel to be seen in how we live. As we talk about these things, uh, those of us who have come to Christ are called to live in a way where others are drawn to the gospel of grace. Not like that scene we saw in the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Imagine being the police and soldiers in there that are getting punched by Christian monks. Uh, would you, as a non-believing Jew, say, I want to know more about your God? I mean, these are not uh, the ways we are to act. Now, with us, what we're told as believers is, the Bible's very clear that without a preacher, how can they hear and believe? We're told to share the gospel with our lips. Francis of Assisi was once known to have said, Uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And I agree with that. We should demonstrate our life in a way where people see the gospel, but we're still called to speak the truth with our lips. But what Paul is telling us today is that our lips can override. Sometimes people will say, I can't hear what you're saying because your lives are speaking louder than your lips. And so what Paul's doing today is he wants us to live in a way where people see the gospel, that it's really made a change in our life. An example of this happened in 1805 in uh, Buffalo, New York. This was, uh, there was a missionary speaker named Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society, and he was speaking to a group of Native Americans, uh, Indian chiefs and warriors who had gathered there at a council in Buffalo, New York in 1805. And after he presented the gospel, one of the leading chiefs by the name of Red Jacket stood up and said this, We are told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less likely to cheat Indians as they have been doing, then we will be willing to listen again to what you say. As Christians, the way that we live can hinder or help somebody's receptivity to the gospel. Now, the Bible's clear. God himself is the one who draws all men and women to himself. Uh, you have tracks in the Bible, uh, in the pew racks in front of you. It says, may I ask you a question? And it takes somebody through the Roman road. And we put those there, not only for visitors to our church, but also for you to take and use. You're welcome to take those and share them with friends and families and others. But it's not enough just to hand somebody a tract. And then the way we live our life, the tracts we leave, uh, if it speaks against what we're telling somebody, then we can, we can hinder the gospel. As you think about people that you know at school, at work, or even in your home, do you realize that some of them would never walk through the doors of Wayside Chapel? Some of them are very unlikely to ever pick up a Bible and read it on their own, but they are reading your life every day. And as you think about the translation of the Bible that you're presenting, is it accurate? As people look at how you live, does it truly reflect what it means to be a believer? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul was saying, as you look at me, you should be able to see Christ in me. Now, Paul wasn't perfect. We've already seen that. He called himself earlier in Ephesians the least of all. We talked about how he was uh, the, the chief of all sinners, as he described himself. And so Paul wasn't perfect, and neither will you or I be perfect. Yet we have to ask ourselves, how are we living? Do people really see Christ in the way we live our lives? If you take the word live, L-I-V-E, and you reverse it and spell it backwards, do you know what it spells? Evil. And as you look at your life, 
Are you living in reverse? Are you living in a way where the priorities or the practices of your life uh, go in reverse to what we're reading here? Do you give people a demonstration of who Christ is in you? Or are you more like the world in the evil and darkness that we see around us? As Christians, we're not called to live backwards. We're instead called to live uh, according to the light that we have in us. We're to shine that light into a dark and dying world to point people to the one who said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And one of the ways we point people to our Lord is through what they see here at the church. Because the church is a gathering of Christians. This is designed to be a little taste of heaven. Now, I promise you, it gets a lot better than this. But when somebody walks through the doors of Wayside, this is a gathering of believers. And they look at one another, how we treat one another, and they say, is there love here? Is there deference to one another? Are are these people who, who really love each other, and do they love me? And so God calls on us to demonstrate that through the gathering of the church. Now, I'm thankful that Wayside is, is a body of believers where I think we do a pretty good job. We're not perfect. But just last week, I had two different occasions where people came to me and they bragged on y'all as a church. One of them was outside of Wayside. I was at a, another place at a meeting in the middle of the week and a, a woman came up to me who's a part of our church and she said, Roger, I need to tell you about my dad. Her, her dad um, has been out of church for more than 20 years. And she said, I want you to know that my dad loves Wayside and loves the way that Wayside treats us and even him. She said, my father has been out of church for almost 20 years because he was burned by other believers, had a bad experience in other churches, and he stopped going. But he's seen the way this church has loved on me and loved on my family. And you've even loved on this man. He went through a recent health issue, and people prayed for him, sent him notes. Some of our pastors were in the hospital with him. And this is a person who's not a part of our church. And he said, I, wanna, I want what Wayside has. I want to go back to church. And I had another person tell me the same thing about a friend who came and said, listen, this person loves what they've seen, and it's helped them to see they need the Lord in their life. And right after the first service, I had another woman come up and hand me a note, and it said the same thing. It's because of what y'all are doing as a body of believers coming together and demonstrating the love of Christ. We are the church. It's not this building as we've talked about. It's not the building out at uh, Stone Oak. It is the group of believers gathered here. And as people see that, they're drawn to the gospel. Now, as I said, we're not perfect. We can always do better. I know there are times somebody walks on our property and they don't have that same experience. And that's why I encourage you y'all on a regular basis to make the entire church a welcome center and to make Stone Oak a welcome center where when somebody comes on property, it's not just when we stand and greet each other or say, come over to the welcome center afterwards. Uh, Look around for people you've never met. Uh, Walk up to them and, and introduce yourself. I do that every Sunday before services. And I have to apologize to people periodically. They're like, Roger, I've been here 10 years. And I'm like, I'm sorry, is this the first time I'm meeting you? Uh, I don't say, say, are you new here? I always ask, how long have you been at Wayside? And that gives people an opportunity to tell you, this is my first Sunday, or I've been here a long time. And as you talk to people, uh, don't just do a hit and run, hi, how are you, and walking away, making clear you don't want to talk to the person. Linger. Look them in the eye. Say, how are you doing this morning? Is there anything I can pray for you? If you see a family or a person looking lost walking through the parking lot, go up to them and don't just say, oh, yeah, the children's building's over there. The ABFs are meeting over in the Ivy Wood houses. Say, hey, can I take you over there? Let me show you where to check in your kids. Let me take you over to where the college and singles are meeting. Let me help you find that class you're looking for. And just linger. Spend a, a little bit of time getting to know the person. You may be the first kind word they've had all week. And, again, I thank you for the way that this church demonstrates the love of Christ. We have a wonderful community of believers that we're building here so we can then reach into the community and the world around us. And to help us do that, uh, how to show and demonstrate God's love to the world around us, God highlights for us five things in our passage this morning. The first one, the first characteristic that should be seen in our lives as Christians is that of humility. Now, I think this tops the list because if we're prideful or we put ourselves first and are selfish to others, it can, it can destroy the unity in a body. 
We see that happening in Luke chapter 22. In Luke 22, 24 and following, the disciples were gathered together with Christ. And this is what it says. And there arose among them also a dispute among the disciples as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This, you'll recall, was in the context of where Jesus got up and he washed the feet of the disciples at the, the Last Supper. They were fighting about who was the greatest, and Jesus got up, he humbled himself, took the form of the lowest servant, and washed their feet. And when he finished, he said, you call me Master and Lord, and so you're right as I am. But he said, I've washed your feet, and now you need to do that for one another. He gave us that example of true humility. Philippians 2.3 tells us, with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. This word for humility uh, in the world has, has a negative meaning. The world defines humility as the, the cringing and cowering of a servant. It speaks of somebody who has a low view of themselves, who kind of a self-deprecating view of who they are. But in the Bible, we're given a different picture. Our humility is not to be practiced as a worthless slave. Rather, we're called to be servants, bond servants of Christ, following the example of our Lord. The true way to be humble is not to look down on yourself. Rather, it's to look up at Christ. As we look up at Christ and we see the true measure of his greatness, it'll show the true measure of our smallness. We can feel uh, big and superior in other things until we look at the example of who Christ is. And later in Ephesians, we're told in Ephesians 4.13 that we are to uh, grow and attain the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, that's our example to emulate. We're not to look around at others and say, well, I'm doing better than him or her or this guy or that girl. What we're to do is we're to look up at God and say, I've got a lot of growing to do. And we're called to be like Christ. Now, the next characteristic is that is to mark us is that of gentleness. This word is also sometimes translated as meekness. Now, this again is a word that the world has given a negative meaning to. When you hear the word meek, what does the world define it as? Weak. The world says meekness is weakness. And yet as you look at what the Bible says in Numbers 12:3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more so than all the men who are on the face of the earth. Now, of you know what you know of Moses, would you say he was a, a weak and timid man? Was this guy just a, a pushover? Moses is the man who stood before Pharaoh the ruler of the known world at the time, the most powerful man on the earth. And he walked into the throne room of Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. He didn't cower in front of Pharaoh. But what he said is the Lord God says, let my people go. And later Moses, after he led the millions in Israel out from under bondage, he stood before the Israelites and he, he confronted them with their idolatry and their fickleness of choosing between the false gods of the world and the true God. Moses was not a weak and timid man, nor was Jesus Christ. And Jesus is described in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 this way. He is meek and lowly in heart. Remember what Jesus did? He was the guy that challenged the religious leaders of the day, the power brokers, the people who, who were running the show in Jerusalem. And he came and he called them a brood of vipers, you whitewashed tomb, you hypocrites. I mean, he was confronting them. Jesus was the guy who went into the temple. Remember, we, we took a tour of the temple in Ephesians chapter 2, and we saw that outer courtyard, the place of prayer for the Gentiles. And we saw how Jesus went in there, and he turned over the tables of the money changers and the merchants who had turned that house of prayer into a den of thieves. Christ confronted wrong. Uh, Jesus is the guy who, as God was kneeling in prayer in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knew what was coming. He knew of the crucifixion. And he was in agony as he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And, and during that time, he knew what was coming. The, the, the guards and the mob were coming to arrest him. He didn't run away. He stood his ground. 
And when they came to arrest him, remember Peter whips out his sword and he swings wildly and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And, and Jesus didn't, you know, jump into the, the fight. Instead, what he said is he turned to Peter and he said, Peter, put your sword away. He said, I have control of legions of angels, the most powerful army the world has or will ever see. And he says, I could call them down in an instant. And instead of uh, exerting his power, he picked up the servants here, he healed him, he told Peter, put away your sword, and he willingly went to be our sacrifice as he went to the cross and pay the penalty of death for us. That is what meekness is. The word literally means strength under control. Strength under control. A good picture of what this is and the way it was used at times was to speak of a, a bucking bronco, an unbroken horse that was taken and broken. So now you could put a saddle on it and a bit and a bridle in its mouth. Uh, years ago, I used to ride horses on more of a regular basis, and I'm sorry to tell you that on two occasions I was bucked off one. And if you've ever been on a horse and you think you're in control, you're in control until that horse decides it doesn't want to be strength under control. Uh, and this is the picture here. The power is resident within us. It doesn't mean that we're weak and timid and powerless and we're a doormat and the world runs over us. It doesn't mean that we don't ever challenge wrong. Uh, but as you look at your life, you have to ask yourself, uh, are you somebody who blows up easily? Do you, do you go to war about the, the littlest, smallest things? And if so, what you need to do is ask God to change your heart. You need to ask God to make you biblically meek to be a man or a woman who is strength under control. You notice the next characteristic that's paired with this uh, dovetails nicely. It says we are to be patient or long-suffering. This word literally means to be long-tempered, long-tempered. Do you have a short fuse in your life? Does somebody cut you off in traffic and you're the next road rage uh, story on the news? I see a couple of you looking at your spouses. Don't do that. <laughs> but are you, are you patient? Are you long-suffering? The word describes somebody who endures discomfort without fighting back. It speaks of self-restraint, which does not retaliate a wrong. Now, remember, this is with strength under control. Now, I told you it doesn't mean that we're doormats as believers, that we roll over and we never confront wrong. When we get to Ephesians 4.26, do you know what it's going to tell us there? It says, be angry and yet do not sin. There are times to be angry. There are times to exhibit righteous indignation. There are times to be as Christ and turn over the table of the money changers and make a whip and drive people out. But you have to ask yourself, are you exercising right anger in the right way? When we get to Ephesians 4.26, we'll unpack more what this means. Now, the next characteristic mentioned here, uh, again, carries forward with what we've been talking about. It says we are to show forbearance. Some translations use the word tolerance. Now, the world, again, has defined this word negatively. Tolerance means we simply sit back and we never confront anything. We just, you live, I live, we live the way we want, we create our own truth. That's not what this word means. It literally means to hold oneself back while holding the other one up. To hold oneself back while holding the other one up. It's showing preference to another. It's putting the other person first and their entrance first. Now, notice that it says there, this is to be, we are to show forbearance in love. The word love that is used here is the Greek word agape. Agape describes that all-giving, self-sacrificing love. It's what's found in John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. As we uh, show this forbearance, it has to be done in love. Now, God knows this can be hard, and it takes work, which is why Ephesians 4.3 tells us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to notice it says to preserve the unity, not create it. You see that? Preserve the unity, not create it. Remember, Paul has already described for us what Jesus did for us. He reconciled us to God. He reconciled us to one another. There was an old Texas rancher who said, any mule can kick down a barn that took 10 good carpenters to build. Anybody can destroy something. 
But as we're talking about this, it wasn't 10 carpenters. It was one carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus Christ who created this, this unity, this reconciliation that we have. And Jesus knew that when he left the earth and he went back to heaven as he ascended, he knew what the church would face. In John chapter 17, as Christ was praying in the garden before his crucifixion, do you remember what he prayed for the church? He didn't say, oh, God, the Father, would you allow Wayside Chapel to be this big, great church? Would you give them big buildings and big budgets and let their name be known all throughout the world? And it wasn't just Wayside, it's the whole church. You know what Jesus prayed? That we would all be one. That we would all be one. That was Christ's prayer for us as he was preparing to leave the earth. When it comes to unity, Psalm 133.1 tells us, Behold how pleasant and good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. The Bible is clear that as people see our love for one another, they will be drawn to what the gospel is and the message of peace and reconciliation. Now when it comes to unity, some people confuse that with uniformity. Uniformity is where we all think alike, act alike, dress alike. But that's not what God's calling us to. He says we're not to be cookie-cutter uh, Christians. We're to imitate Christ. Yeah, that's our model. But he says it's going to look different in the different lives and in the different local bodies all around us. Covenant Presbyterian Church, a Bible-believing church across the street, is different than Wayside Chapel. Just as Castle Hills up the road is different and Oak Hills and Grace Point and other churches in our city, the Well and, and the Park Church, these are all bodies of believers that are going to look different than Wayside. But at the core, we're the same. The Bible uses 1 Corinthians 12 as an example of what the body of believers looks like. It uses the human body. And it says not everybody's a hand, not everybody's an eye, not everybody's a foot. The, the, the internal organs, the things that are less seemingly, he says they, they are given the, the least amount of uh, honor, and yet sometimes they're the most vital. And as you look at who we are, God isn't calling us to think alike. He's calling us to think together and to fulfill the purpose that he's called us to and to live as those who, who draw people in. There was a pastor by the name of Stuart Briscoe, and as he talks about the, the church and, and the, the human body, he says hands and teeth usually get along well together, particularly if they belong to the same body. Hands have been known to punch teeth and teeth to bite hands, but rarely on the same body. But that's what happens when Christians fight each other. They bite their own hands and they punch their own teeth. You see, rather than being at war with each other, we're not called to fight the family of God. We're called to fight our foe named Satan. And what he tells us here is we are to be diligent to preserve this unity. This word diligent means to endeavor and to be on guard. The, the form of the verb is a present active participle, which means it is a constant, ongoing, moment-by-moment call for us to be at work. It's like a marriage relationship. Those of you who have been in a marriage know that you have a, a man and a woman who come together, unique and different people, who by nature are sinful and fallen and selfish. And as you come together in a relationship, the Bible says the two become one flesh. There's this unity, and yet there's this, this sin nature that remains in the, in the marriage and in the, the relationship. There are times you fight with each other. There are times you want things your way. But if you live in a way that it's always about me and my needs and not yours, it's like two ticks without a dog and you both starve to death. And you don't need a tick and a dog. You need two dogs, two golden retrievers running around having a great time in the park playing together. You know, and this is the relationship that mirrors that of the church. We're called the bride of Christ. And as you think about one and one selfish people, a man and a woman coming together and the problems that you have in a marriage, multiply that by the, the people you see all around you. As we come together, what God calls us to do is exactly that, come together to show preference and honor and deference and humility to one another and not about my preferences, what I want. Now, when it comes to unity, as a... As I said, some people mistake that with uniformity. The other mistake people make when it comes to unity is some people say, well, peace at any price. God wants us to be unified, and that means anytime there's any problem, we just set it aside. That's what the world is doing. 
The world is, is eliminating all truth and saying everybody's truth is equal and everything is the same. And you're, you're to uh, be tolerant of my views. You know, it's interesting. The world's tolerant of everything but evangelical Christianity. And so what it says is people in the church sometimes say, well, we're to tolerate each other and the diversity and, and you know, nothing is worth fighting over. But I want to remind you that what we're reading today to preserve the unity, do you remember where it's located in Paul's letter? He's just spent three chapters hammering home doctrine. And as you look at verses 4 through 6, you know what he does? He goes back to doctrine. He puts this call for unity in the middle of the essentials, the truths that are worth fighting for. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. He doesn't say like the world does, there are all these gods, and there are all these roads home to heaven, and everybody's truth is equal. What he says is, there is truth, and there is one foundation. He starts with the Trinity. He, he, he speaks of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Remember in chapter 1, he told us how we were saved through the work of the Trinity there at the end of chapter 1. He, he talked about God the Father planned our salvation, God the Son provided our salvation, and God the Holy Spirit sealed and indwelt us and empowers us with our salvation. God's making clear that, that as we are looking to be unified, it has to be with other Bible-believing Christians or churches. The world tells us that everybody should get along, that all faiths are equal, that, you know, all roads eventually lead home to heaven. Is that what the Bible tells us? No, Jesus said plainly in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way home. And so when you talk to somebody who's a Jehovah's Witness, they will tell you, well, we believe the Bible. Now, their Bible is different than ours. It changes the, the, the text and places. They mistranslate passages to fit their theology. And their theology, theos, God, ology, the study of God, removes Jesus Christ from the Trinity. They say Jesus Christ is not the Savior. Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. So we are not to have partnership with Jehovah's Witness. They are not believers in Christ. They do not share the one faith. They do not speak the truth. It's the same thing with Muslims. I've read the Koran, and as you read the Koran, it says Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. They affirm that truth. They affirm that Jesus, in their book, is a great prophet, but not the Son of God, it says plainly. They say Jesus is not the Messiah, the promised one of God. So we cannot have uh, partnership with Muslims. We can't have partnerships with Mormons. Mormons will tell you we believe in the Bible. Again, their scriptures have places they've changed the translation, and they've added to it. They have the Book of Mormon. They have the Pearl of the Great Price. They have Doctrines and Covenants. And what Mormonism will teach you, you talk to a Mormon, they are good and fine people, but they're lost because their theology says that one day we can become a God just like Jesus Christ. Now, we saw in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. When you talk to a Mormon, they will tell you Jesus is the son of God. But as you drill down in their theology, what you will find is they say we can all be sons of God. We can all become a God just like Jesus. We can all have our planet to populate in things if you reach the, the third highest heaven in Mormonism. But that is not what the scripture says. We're in the Christmas season where we're celebrating the truth that God took on flesh and blood and came to earth. In John 1, 1, it tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And it goes on to talk to us about how the only begotten took on flesh and blood. He became uh, like we are, human in form, but he was fully God. He didn't become a God. He was always God. You read John three sixteen. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When you read that word, only begotten son, it's the Greek word monogenes. And what the word mono, one, genes, of a kind means is literally the unique, one-of-a-kind God-man. There is no other who has ever been or will ever be like Jesus Christ. Mormonism teaches you can become a God like Christ, and the Bible teaches that is heresy. 
So we can't have partnership with any of these other religions in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we run around and we blast them out of the water. Remember, we've been called on here to be those who demonstrate the love of God. Jude 1.3 tells us, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend, that word means fight, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, as he tells us to fight for the faith, remember we just saw that we are to exercise strength under control. This isn't about winning the argument, blasting the person, and losing the ability to share the truth with them. In fact, what 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 tells us is this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. You see, what it tells us is if you go out and you're just hammering somebody with the truth, that's not what you're called to do. You've heard me say before that truth can be like ice, crystal clear and just as cold. And the Bible doesn't tell us as believers, go into the world and be ice, does it? It says, go into the world and be salt and light. We've already talked about what light means earlier in this series where we dispel the darkness as we pass the light. And the word salt, uh, if you put salt on ice, what does it do? It melts it. And salt was used in, in many ways in the ancient world. It was a preservative that would keep uh, things from rotting. We have a rotting and dying world, and we as believers are called to be the preservation. We're, we're, we're put into the world to help uh, delay and, and stop the decay as the truth is brought out. It was used to enhance flavor, not to repel somebody. In fact, when you think of the word salt, the chemical name for it is sodium chloride. Now, I'm not a chemist, but I've talked to those who are, and they tell me that, that sodium is a very active element, and it wants to bond itself to something else. And in the case of sodium chloride, what it does is it bonds itself to chlorine. Do you know what chlorine is? Have you ever opened a bottle of bleach and, oh, you got that offensive smell? Well, it's even worse than that. It can be deadly. If you inhale uh, chlorine gas, it can kill you. And as believers, what God is telling us is we're to marry truth and love together, sodium and, and chloride, so to speak. You see, truth alone can be offensive, even deadly. But the problem is the world majors on the, the sodium side that says, let's attach ourselves to everything. Love trumps everything. And so people tell you, well, love plus anything is great. But the Bible tells us, no, God wants us to, to speak the truth in love. You see, love alone can be flighty. It can attach itself blindly to various doctrines or causes. And truth alone can be offensive, even poisonous. If it's spoken without love, it can turn people away. But the picture God gives for us is the two are to come together and we become that, that enhancing and that preservative element that gives life to others. That's what God wants Wayside Chapel to be like in each of our lives to look like. Now, as we talk about contending for the truth, what does that mean? What is the truth we're to fight for? This is where you, brothers and sisters, have to look in your heart of hearts and ask yourself, what are the essentials of the faith? What are the things that are worth fighting over? And if you're confused about what's important, a great place to go is the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. You've read it. You've memorized it if you come from a Catholic background as I do. And in it, you see the essentials, the virgin birth, the authority of God, the, the resurrection of Christ. These are the essentials of the faith. Have you ever flown on a, a jumbo jet? You get on a plane and you're, you're flying out. Next time you get on a plane, if you're sitting by a window seat near the wings especially, I want you to look out the window and you're going, not going to happen, Roger, I hate flying. For those of you who are brave enough, I want you to look out the window and notice what happens with the wings. Now, I'm not a pilot, but I, I have friends who are and others who are aerospace engineers, and they tell me when they design a plane, those, those massive wings that are out there, if you watch on takeoff, you're going to watch those wingtips move several feet. And it's okay. The plane is designed to do that. 
You see, way out on the ends, there has to be some flexibility or the plane is going to be too rigid and the wings are going to shear off and there's going to be a crash. Now, what you don't want to see is wiggling at the fuselage. That has to be firmly attached. You don't want any movement there. And this is a picture of what we're talking about. The core doctrines, the essentials of the faith, right here, there can be no wiggle room. As I said, I can't partner with Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and Muslims. I can love them and I can speak the truth to them, but I can't accept what they say uh, is, is your truth and my truth. No, there is only one truth, one faith. The scripture has very clearly told us. Now, where the wiggle room is, is when I talk to other Christians who maybe are charismatic in their belief and they say, I speak in tongues. Uh, I've never spoken in tongues personally. But I don't break fellowship with a Christian. Now, if they tell me tongues are necessary in order to be saved, you're moving into a core doctrine of salvation. And I will oppose that and walk through the scriptures with them. But if they say God has given me a private prayer language or this is something wonderful, there can be wiggle room for you and me. I'm not going to break fellowship. Uh, If your eschatology is different than mine, that's that big word that talks about are you premillennial, pre-tribulational, Uh, you know, post-toasties, people talk about the the different views. Now, the way we interpret the Bible is very important because it affects, do you look at the Bible literally or not? So there are parts of it that I say are a core essential. But if you're somebody who wants to go through the tribulation, you know, that's fine. Uh, I'll wave at you from heaven. Actually, the good news is uh, I believe you'll be with me in heaven during that time as the rapture occurs. But I'm not going to break fellowship with a brother or sister who's charismatic or a good and godly man or woman who has spent countless hours in the scripture themselves and has a different view uh, than I do. That's not what we're to fight over. We're to be unified in the essentials. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He tells us in Ephesians 4.4, there is one body. That refers to the universal body of Christ called the church. It's not just our local church. It's all believers. And there's going to be some difference in worship and belief. But on the essentials, there has to be what he says here, one spirit, one baptism. 1 Corinthians 1.12 tells us, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 4, 6 tells us there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What that means is there is one true triune God who is the creator of all and not a multitude of gods in the world like the world tries to tell us. It says you were called in one hope of your calling in verse 4. We have only one hope which rests solely in Jesus Christ. Acts 4:12 tells us and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never found the way home through the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, I invite you this morning to come to Christ, to turn from your sins and to turn to our Savior, the one who paid the penalty of death so that we could be made a part of the family. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, I invite you to do so today. We're going to come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, what we're reminded of today is what Christ did to save us. How he came to be our sacrifice the one who died to pay that penalty of sin that I owe and you owe. And as we come to this communion table, it's the story of Christmas. Because right now, many people are thinking about presents and gifts and the things they want and the reunions of family and friends and other things. And we find the Christmas story here at the communion table. Because the greatest gift any of us could ever receive is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave you a gift. He gave me a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that unique, one-of-a-kind God-man, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and blood to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death, that penalty we owed that separated us from God.
that separated us from one another. And if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, God offers you the opportunity this morning as the elements are about to be passed to take the bread and to say as you do so, God, I'm accepting your son Jesus. I'm taking him to be my savior. I believe you died on the cross to pay my penalty of death. I believe you rose from the dead three days later showing you indeed are who you said you were, the son of God, the one who conquered sin and death. Take the cup the cup that represents his blood, that blood that was shed to wash away our sins. As we saw earlier in Ephesians, it is the the sacrifice, the propitiation, that big word that means the satisfaction is it paid the penalty of death and washed away our sins. So if you've never come to Christ in this morning, you're ready to receive God's great gift of new life. I invite you to take the elements and become a part of the family. For the rest of us who already know the Lord as our Savior, whether you're a part of Wayside or not, we invite you to this table. It's open to all who are believers, all who are part of the universal body of Christ. The Bible tells us to come with clean hands and hearts. So as you think about your life, if it's been lived in reverse and you've done some things that are not honoring to God, use this time to confess your sins. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess them. Will you serve us, please?
we hold a piece of bread. But it represents to us the bread of life, the one who was given on our behalf, the one who left his throne in heaven, the one who humbled himself, not just taking on flesh and blood, not just uh, humbling himself to the point of washing the disciples' feet, but the Bible says he humbled himself to the point of the lowest of the low, dying a criminal's death on the cross, becoming and taking on the curse of sin and death that you owed and I owed, the body of Jesus Christ needed in remembrance of him. And here we have a cup. It's a cup of grape juice, but it represents something so precious, the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We're seeing lots of manger scenes, lots of cute little babies wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in mangers right now. But I want you to remember that the story of Christmas is not about a baby of Bethlehem. That's the beginning of the story. It ends as the Christ of Calvary, as that baby grew up into a man who ultimately went to the cross and paid the penalty of death that I and you owe for our sins. God gave that precious gift of his son to be the sacrifice, knowing that his blood would have to be shed. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. God took on flesh and blood to be our perfect and permanent sacrifice, the one who would set us free from the sin, the penalty of sin and death, the blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. God, we thank you for your great gift of new life. New and eternal life that came through the giving of the life of your son. Jesus, we are grateful that you willingly left your throne in heaven and humbled yourself to become our sacrifice, to make us a part of your family. Lord God, as we think of the angel Gabriel, the messenger who came and said, Behold, I give you news of great joy. Not only to Mary, as you told her, she would bear the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah. But as the Magi were told, there is news of great joy. For in the city of David has been born for you today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Father, as we think of this Christmas season and all that it means, this is what it means. Your great love for us. As you loved us so much, you gave your Son to die for us. As those who have received that great gift of new life, would you make us your messengers, men and women, boys and girls, who will go into the world and share the good news of the Christmas story, the good news of reconciliation, peace that was purchased through Jesus. Thank you, God, for this great gift. May we be those who carry the gift as we leave here today and share it with others. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We stand, please, and sing this closing song of worship. Thank you.